Hey, good morning. How are you all? Good. Glad to have you here. How many of you were not here last week because you were at the beach or you were out on your boat on the lake? Come on, raise your hands. Show your pride. You, yeah, you're on vacation. Good for you. I've got a friend, a pastor friend up in Anchorage, Alaska, where the summers are really short. So in the summer, he says to his people, you know, I'd rather you were out sitting on a boat thinking about Jesus than sitting in a pew thinking about your boat. Which actually makes sense, doesn't it? So welcome back to, to all of you. I'm going to show you a photograph. If you take a look at the screen here, this is actually a photograph of me taken about 12 years ago. You may wonder what I was doing in the middle of the woods wearing surgical gloves and holding a tweezers. And you might be wondering, what's that on the ground in front of you? Well, I was there to investigate a multiple murder. The victims, that's what's on the ground in front of me, the Three Little Pigs. Have you heard of them? Yeah. Now, the usual suspect is the Big Bad Wolf. This was a different situation. According to the medical examiner, the cause of death, the Three Little Pigs were crushed to death in their sleep. So the chief suspect in this crime was Mom, because Mom was a 400-pound sow. Now, that's not a nice thing to say about anybody, but those are the facts, ma'am, just the facts. So how do you know whether mom's guilty or not? Because she said she had nothing to do with it. She had an alibi. She was out of town when the crime occurred. Does her alibi hold up or doesn't it? The only way to know for sure is to determine exactly when death occurred. How do you do that? Well, after 72 hours of death, the most accurate way to quantify time of death is through forensic entomology. Now, entomologists are the scientists who study insects... By doing this, they can determine the post-mortem interval. What's that? That's the elapsed time between when that photograph was taken and when the three little pigs actually met their demise. See, what entomologists have learned over the years is that when a body dies, there are insects, blowflies, and flesh flies that can detect death from as far as two miles away, and they will land on that body within minutes of death, within minutes so don't fall asleep in church, because that could happen to you. They will land on that body within minutes of death. They lay eggs, and then they go through their normal pattern of development. Now, entomologists have learned to time that development. They know exactly how long it takes that species of insect to go from an egg to a mature adult. They know down to the hour. So... In a situation like that photograph, if you take the insects that I collected, if you identify their stage of development and count backwards, you can tell the exact time of death down to the hour. And that's what I was there to do. So how did it turn out? Well, it turns out mom's alibi fell apart. And you'll be happy to know she's now serving time at Bob Evans. <laughs> Alongside a couple of fried eggs and some hash browns. Justice is done. I've written nine murder mysteries. Six of them feature the same lead character, a fictional character, Dr. Nick Polchak, who is supposed to be a professor of entomology at NC State. When I started writing my bug man stories, I had to do a lot of research into forensic entomology, and I wanted to make sure I got my facts straight. So what I did is I signed up for a course 
in central Indiana taught by a real-life forensic entomologist. It's a course offered once a year for coroners and crime scene investigators, people who actually are first responders to murder scenes. The course is intended to teach these peoples how to accurately collect, identify, and preserve insects from murder victims. So I signed up for the course. Now, it was a three-day course, and for the first three hours of every day, we met in an American Legion hall. For the first three hours, they would show slides of murders. And they would say, okay, take a look at this guy. How long do you think he's been dead? Oh, and by the way, we're having Krispy Kremes in the back of the room. You guys just help yourselves whenever you're hungry, because they're immune, right? That's how we spend the first three hours of the day. The afternoons were spent doing the practicum. That's where my photograph was taken. See, the guy that taught the course owned a corn farm, and his next-door neighbor was a hog farmer. And what forensic entomologists have learned over the years is that pigs and human beings decompose at exactly the same rate. And in most states, it's illegal to do studies like that on actual people, so they use pigs instead. So whenever a pig would pass away, like the three little pigs, the bodies would just be taken to this guy's corn farm where he would drop them off in different environments. One victim would be out in the middle of the sun, one in the woods like mine, maybe in the trunk of a car, in a creek, wherever a real-life murder victim might be found. Now, my job, glove up, take my tweezers, spend my afternoon collecting, brace yourself, maggots from decomposing pigs. My job was to correctly collect them preserve them, and identify them, then bring them back to be checked out by this forensic entomologist to make sure I had learned to do it correctly. Three days of this, and at the end, to celebrate our new skill, we had a pig roast. <laughs> now, aren't you sorry you were gone last week? Because that's the kind of fun we have here when you're on vacation. See, last week I introduced the topic of Christian apologetics to those of you who are here. I told you it's a perfectly good pastime with a perfectly terrible name. It's a terrible name because apologetics sounds like we're saying we're sorry for something and that's not the case. It's actually a legal term. When a defense attorney offers a defense for his client, he's actually delivering an apology. 1 Peter 3, Peter told us that we should always be prepared to give an answer to anyone who asks us a reason for the hope that's in us. And he said, when you're doing that, you should always do it in gentleness and with reverence. See, that's the task of apologetics. And last week, I began by, by suggesting some common questions or complaints your friends or family members or coworkers might have about the Christian faith and some simple illustrations that you could use to reply. So this morning what I'm doing here is focusing in on just a single question because one of the most common complaints you'll hear from critics of the Christian faith is that when you read the Gospels, you're not really reading history. Oh yeah, there was some history. There were some original truths about the life of Jesus, whoever he really was, whatever he really did. but. See, the problem is they would say over the years, those original stories were passed through the hands of a series of editors who embellished, cleaned them up, altered them, so that now when you pick up the Gospels, you're not really reading history, you're reading fiction. But see, I've, read, I've written nine murder mysteries now. I've written over a million words of fiction. 
and I don't buy it. And I'm here this morning to explain to you why the greatest story ever told would be the world's worst fiction. See, fiction actually does pass through a series of editors. That's the way the process works. In fact, the last editor that you'll ever see is a copy editor. The copy editor is the one assigned to your manuscript to make sure everything is spelled exactly right, that all your grammar is perfect, and these people have eagle eyes. I've had a copy editor write to me and say, you know this phrase that you set in italics? Well, the comma that follows, you set that comma in italics, and it shouldn't be. Seriously. And I've always wanted to write back and say, you'll be glad to know that there are medications available <laughs> for people like you. Boy, that is the kind of eagle eye they have. The last book that I wrote had four copy editors. That'll make you crazy. And by the way, copy editors are far more often women than men. You can draw your own conclusions <laughs> about that. But long before your story makes it to a copy editor, it will go through the hands of a story editor. And story editors don't care about your grammar or about your spelling. They only care about story. The first novel that I wrote was story edited by a guy that used to edit for Stephen King. And the only reason I tell you that is to make me sound more successful than I actually am. <laughs> he took this manuscript that I had sweated blood over and he cut 45 pages out of it. He threw 45 pages of inerrant text away. Can you believe that? Now, writers have a love-hate relationship with editors. It's true. We hate them because they don't love our words. See, they don't know how long I stayed up. They don't know how much blood I sweat to write that passage or what brilliant research I did to come up with that, that one section. They don't know. They don't care. They don't love our words, and we hate them for that. We love them because they don't love our words. See, the problem is in the writing of a 100,000-word manuscript, you develop enormous blind spots. You, you fall in love with passages, or you cling to them because you know how long you stayed up to write that one, or you're fascinated by the research that you did, right? And they don't love those words, and that's their whole value. They bring an objectivity to your story that you lost a long time ago. So when a story editor reads your manuscript, he's got two questions in mind. Number one, what you've written, does it develop character or does it advance the plot? If not, where's my red pen? Because it's gone. And in my case, it was 45 pages of material that did not develop character or advance the plot. Now, if the Gospels passed through the hands of a series of fiction editors, that's what they would have been, what would those editors have done with the Gospels? Well, I'm going to describe four things that they would have done if this had actually happened. And here's the first. An editor would not allow six characters named Mary. <laughs> See, one of the most enjoyable things that a writer gets to do in writing fiction is name all those characters. In a novel, you might have 12 to 15 different characters. My lead forensic entomologist, I named Nick Polchek. Isn't that a cool name? I never looked in the white pages to see if it's anybody's actual name. I just figured, that sounds good. Pull check. It's got a good sound. I've said it twice now, so you'll remember it too. We name characters after people that we like. We name characters after people we hate. 
and then we kill the characters. <laughs> I've done that in my novels, and now I feel great. <laughs> it's a form of therapy. It's like voodoo. I highly recommend it. We name characters after our beloved grandmother, but the point is your story editor doesn't know your beloved grandmother, so they don't care where the names came from. What they care about is not confusing the reader. So if you chose to name your characters Will and Bill and Phil, uh-uh, that's not going to make it by your story editor. In fact, if you do in your story what we do in real life, name all your kids different names that start with the same first letter, uh-uh, that's not going to make it past a story editor. If all of your names have the same number of syllables, see, the problem with Will and Bill and Phil isn't just that they rhyme. The problem is also with the rhythm. A story editor will say, nope, you need some two-syllable names, or you need a hyphenated name. They need to stand out from one another. George Foreman, former heavyweight boxing champion of the world, now most famous for the George Foreman grill, right? He's got 12 kids, he's got five sons, and George Foreman famously named all five sons George. Oh yeah, named all of them after him. That's got to be the world's most cooperative wife. Don't you think? She must go along with everything. But here's the interesting thing. Though George Foreman named all five sons George, he only called one of them George around the house. Around the house, he called the others Monk, Big Wheel, Red, and Little Joey. Why? <laughs> because you'd go nuts if you didn't. I mean, can you imagine living every day going, hey, George. Call George, tell him to bring George. Really, seriously, you're going to do that? Did you guys see uh, My Big Fat Greek Wedding? Remember that movie? Remember the scene where the mom is introducing her extended Greek family, and she's going, this is Nick, and this is Nick, and there's Nick, 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 Nick. Remember that? She's making fun of just how common the name Nick is in the Greek culture. But did you notice that in the movie itself, the main characters aren't all named Nick, are they? Why? Because no script editor would ever let that pass. That would confuse you, the viewer, right? So what do you find in the New Testament? Well, in the Gospels, there are at least six Marys and maybe seven. We're not sure because we can't always tell who they're talking about. There's Mary, the mother of Jesus. There's Mary, the mother of James and Joseph. There's Mary Magdalene. There's Mary of Bethany. There's Mary, the mother of John Mark. And there's Mary of Rome. There might be a seventh one, scholars don't agree, because we can't even tell who they're talking about sometimes. Now, why, why in the world would a writer do that? What writer would be so stupid as to name all his characters the same name? And what editor would be so foolish as to let that pass? The answer is no editor would let that pass, and no writer would do that unless there just happened to be Nick, 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 and Nick, right? Unless Mary was just that common a name and there happened to be six or seven characters named Mary. That's an eyewitness account. What else would an editor do? Well, secondly, an editor would cut out irrelevant details. This is firefly season. Have you noticed? For you bug lovers out there, there they are glowing in your yard. Did you know that when you look into the sky and you see those little flashes of fireflies, those are all males? Did you know that? You know, you rarely see a female firefly because they're hidden in the grass. Did you know that every species of firefly has its own distinct flash pattern? 
For example, there is Photinus peralis, also known as the Big Dipper firefly. When it flashes, it's not just a blink, they actually make the letter J in the air. If you look carefully, you'll spot it. Now, the female Photinus hides in the grass, and she makes that little letter J. She is signaling to a male somewhere in the air. When the male sees that letter J, he flashes back the same pattern. They make a connection. This is how they meet and mate. But there's another species of firefly called Photurus peralis. It's larger than Photinus, and it's a predator. So the female Photurus hides in the grass, and she has learned to mimic the flash pattern of other species. She makes the letter J, and when the male Photinus sees it, he's attracted to her, and she has him for dinner. The lesson is, watch out for females. Nature is trying to warn us here. Now, are you fascinated by this? Are you taking good notes? Photinus, Photurus, you get that down? Or are you bored? Well, my story editor was bored, and I found that fascinating. So he cut three pages of fascinating research on different species of firefly and flash pattern to one lousy paragraph, because he's not in love with my research. He's concerned about whether I put the reader to sleep. See the idea? So story editors cut out irrelevant details. Does it develop character? Does it advance plot? So what do you find when you read in the Gospels? This is John chapter 20. John obviously writing his own Gospel. So Peter and the other disciple, who's the other disciple? That's John's humble way of saying me. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Now, imagine a meeting between the editor and John. The editor would say, okay, John, let me, let me see if I understand this. You were both running, but you got there first. Is there some reason that we need to know that you won the foot race to the tomb, especially when you go on to say that you didn't even go in? Peter's the guy that went in, so the action of the story will continue with Peter, not you. Is there some reason that you needed to show us your track medal? And the answer is no. But John was a guy, right? And he just couldn't resist getting into the story the fact that he won <laughs> the foot race to the tomb. It's an irrelevant detail. Or John chapter 21, one chapter later. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you have just caught. This is a, this is a post-resurrection appearance, right? Bring some of the fish you have just caught. So Simon Peter climbed back into the boat and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153, but even with so many, the net was not torn. The editor would say to John, now John, is there some reason here that we need to know there's 153 fish? Why would he bother to tell us that? What did John do for a living before he was a disciple? Do you remember? He was a fisherman. It's a fish story. In fact, the surprising thing is that John didn't say it was full of large fish, 153, and you should have seen the one that got away. It must have been, right? So he just throws in the kind of a detail that a fisherman would throw in. But it's the kind of a detail that a decent editor would have crossed out. 
But that kind of irrelevant detail, it's typical of eyewitness testimony. See, if somebody witnesses an automobile accident when the police come to investigate, they'll interview the witness. And they might say, ma'am, did you see this accident take place? Yes, I did. Well, can you tell me what happened? Absolutely. Uh, I was at Food Lion, and when I left, I thought I'd go by Wendy's because I love their Frosties. Only I went through the drive-thru because I didn't want to go in dressed like this. What? Now, if the witness happened to be a crime scene investigator or maybe a professional journalist, for journalists, the motto is don't bury the lead. So they would go right to the relevant details. But amateurs, eyewitnesses, they don't know to do that. So what they'll do is just tell you what they saw, right? And in any kind of an eyewitness account, you get a collection. Some things relevant, some things not. Editors cut out irrelevant detail. Somehow that didn't happen in the Gospels. Here's a third thing an editor would do. An editor would amend problem passages. I wrote a novel called First the Dead. The story was set in the city of New Orleans in the week following Hurricane Katrina. Because I thought to myself, this would make a great setting for a murder mystery. You've got a flooded city, people unfortunately perishing in the flood... What if some bad guy decided to do away with some of his enemies, bring the bodies into the city, drop them in the water along with victims of the flood? What a great way to disguise a murder. That's what I think about in my spare time. <laughs> what about you? So you can imagine a lot of people from the city of New Orleans read that novel. And I would get letters from people that would say things like this. You know, you said Nick was driving down Elm and made a left on Mulberry. But Mulberry is a one-way right there, so Nick couldn't turn left. Seriously? Yeah. Because fiction readers see it as a competition, and they are notorious fact-checkers. Readers will say, you know, you said there was a Glock, and when it ran out of bullets, it went click, click, click. You'll see this on TV all the time. Yeah, but when a Glock runs out of bullets because it's a slide action, it doesn't go click, click. It doesn't make a sound. Only a revolver makes a sound. Seriously? In one of my novels, I said that a bad guy created an explosion by pulling a wire and exposing the spark plug on a diesel engine. And someone wrote to me and said, really? That's interesting because diesel engines don't have spark plugs. They have glow plugs. Seriously? Yes, because they read that close. In fact, the most common letter I ever get from readers says, just thought I'd let you know, I figured out the ending of your book three chapters before the end. And I've always wanted to write back and say, three chapters? The average is five. <laughs> you must be slow. <laughs> but I don't because I'm a nice writer. My point here is writers and editors learn to work their way around problem passages. Why ask for trouble? So instead of writing, Nick drove down Elm and made a left on Mulberry, what I'll write is, Nick drove down Elm and made a left near Mulberry. Problem solved, right? And an editor will help you spot those things. Here's what Luke writes in his gospel. The gospel of Luke, chapter 2, as he's just getting underway. 
He says, in those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone went to their own town to register. Oh, my. Think of the problems he just asked for there. Imagine a meeting between the editor and Luke. The editor would say, Luke, man, look at the facts you just hung out there to be checked. You said all these events in your book, they happened during the reign of Caesar Augustus. You know there are secular histories of Caesar Augustus. You want to go up against that? And you just announced that Augustus issued a decree for a census, and he did it more than one time. That's another fact that can be checked. And you just named a guy named Quirinius and said he was governor of Sirius. Now, look, you realize within two generations, people will forget Quirinius entirely, but your book's going to be around for a long time. That means people are going to challenge whether this guy even existed. Do you want to go there? You even said that when there was this census, people had to go to their ancestral town to be a part of the census. People can check all your facts. Why do you want this kind of trouble? You're writing fiction, Luke. So you want to start like long ago in a galaxy far, far away. See, see how easy that is? Somehow an editor let this pass. Why? Because there was no editor that got a hold of it. And Luke was an eyewitness, and he was confident of his facts, and that's why he wrote them down. Here's a fourth thing that an editor would do. An editor would polish up the characters in the story. Now, my lead character that I've written six novels about, Dr. Nick Polchak, is a lot of fun to write because, well, Nick doesn't like people. He likes bugs. He likes bugs because if you know the species of insect and you know the environment that you find it in, you can predict exactly what the insect's behavior will be. Human beings are not like that. We are irrational and unpredictable. Sometimes we kill for no reason at all. So Nick doesn't like people. Nick likes bugs. He is socially inept. And in any social setting, you can count on Nick to say the wrong and embarrassing thing. He will say the kind of thing that would get you beat up. That's why I like writing Nick. He's my social fantasy. He gets to say all the things I can't get away with. So if I turn a manuscript into my story editor, and in the story, Nick suddenly becomes sensitive or romantic, my story editor will say, okay, hold it. That's not Nick. Nick wouldn't do that. In fact, it's a weird thing for a writer because when you create a character, you think, this is my baby. But when you turn a manuscript into a story editor, there's joint custody. See, they get a sense of the character you're trying to create, and they spot character inconsistencies. And they'll tell you, sorry, Nick's not a romantic guy. You've got to go back, and you've got to fix that. Now, we do this in fiction editing, and we even do it in real life. Have you noticed? We polish characters up over time. So George Washington, father of our country, truly a, a great man, indispensable man in the American Revolution. We add on the story about George Washington throwing a silver dollar across the Potomac, right? Only the Potomac is about 650 yards wide near the downtown, and if George could do that, he should be pitching for the Nationals, right? Or, and when you were a kid, did you hear the story about George Washington chopping down the cherry tree? His father says to him one day, who chopped down this cherry tree? Young George says, I cannot tell a lie. 
I chopped down the cherry tree, which is supposed to impress us with his honesty and his complete disrespect for private property, all at the same time, I suppose. But here's my point. If you want to polish the character of George, right, by adding a story like the cherry tree to demonstrate how honest he is, you also go back in the story of George Washington and you take out any story that makes him look dishonest. See, there's two ways to polish a character, by adding something good or taking out something bad. So what about the characters that we find in the Gospels? Well, let's take Peter. Peter, the rock upon whom Jesus said he would build his church. In the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 16, this is what you find. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. The passage goes on. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Now, let's imagine a meeting between the story editor and Matthew. The story editor would have said, okay, Matt, let me see if I get this straight. This Peter, this is the guy that Jesus named the rock, right? Only see in this passage that you've written, Jesus calls him Satan. You see a problem here? See a bit of an inconsistency, and later on in your manuscript, when Jesus is about to be crucified, your character, the rock, denies knowing Jesus three times, and then later feels so bad about it that he cries. You know, Matt, he can't be the rock and a crybaby at the same time. I mean, does that sound rock-like to you? You've got some major character inconsistencies here. You really need to go back and work on this guy again. See, fictional characters, we clean up. We take out the bad stuff, and we add some good stuff. Real-life characters, well, we're more inconsistent, right? Real-life characters, sometimes we are rocks, and sometimes we are crybabies. That's just human nature. When we read the Gospels, the story that we get is sometimes confusing. And the Gospels are filled with names that are hard to keep straight. And it's not just Mary, 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 and Mary. Even the disciples themselves have multiple names. Have you noticed that? Thank you. It's filled with irrelevant details. There are timelines that are difficult to follow. And the characters don't make decent fiction but they make good real-life characters, don't they? See, Peter, in 2 Peter 1, said, We did not follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. What Peter was saying is the reason the Gospels don't make good fiction is because they're not fiction at all. We just reported what we saw, what we witnessed. Paul once said, if Christ has not been raised from the dead, really, historically, actually raised from the dead, we are of all men most to be pitied. And if the Gospels are just a collection of inspirational stories, go watch Harry Potter. 
we got plenty of fictional, inspirational stories. No fictional story will change your life. The reason the Gospels are of value to us is because they are the sloppy, confusing, and sometimes irrelevant eyewitness accounts of people who actually lived with Jesus, who saw him heal people with only word and walk on the surface of water and even eventually die and three days later return from the dead. The Gospels that you and I read would be the world's worst fiction, but they remain the greatest story ever told. Let me pray for us. Thank you, Lord God, for these confusing accounts that you give to us. Thanks that these things actually happened and that a real Jesus lived a real perfect life, really died and really came back from the dead. So give us understanding of these stories and help us to pass them on to others. Change our lives because of them. We thank you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.